Amen. We're going to cover 30 verses of Scripture here, and we're going to deal with the believer's authority, particularly as it has to do with prayer. Prayer is not first a matter of fervency or frequency or the manner in which we do it. Prayer is first a matter of authority. If we have no authority to pray, then all else is in vain. If we have authority to ask for that which we are asking for, then do we with confidence know we receive it. But if the answer to our prayer is simply based on our sincerity or our intensity or anything else within ourselves, then we have no confidence in the answer. Now the Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now I'm going to take a different approach than what you expect. He said, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, it is not God's will that anyone should die and go to hell. Let me ask you, are there going to be those who die and go to hell? There already has been, has there not? Well, now, if it's not God's will that any should perish, and yet many do perish, is God not having his will accomplished? I'm going to meddle in some things. That I'm going to stir up some theology here. We might not be able to answer it all. But I'm going to try to get to our hearts the, the thing that we have built up that keeps us from praying. If it's not the will of the Father that any should perish, why is it that some perish? Is God's will being thwarted? Is God in some way handicapped? Is God limited? Furthermore, let me ask you, is God limited to our prayers? The only answer we can come up with is that apparently God has chosen to operate within some kind of parameters that do not allow him to forcibly accomplish his will. Do you understand what I said? Apparently, I'm going to tell you what they are in a minute, but... The obvious conclusion, if a sovereign God has a will, and that will does not get done, then that sovereign God has sovereignly designed a program wherein he has limited himself. Are you following me? The only way that a sovereign God can, can have a will, and that will doesn't get done, is, is that he has placed his will in the hands of another, and someone else has failed. And God has created those parameters in which he has predesignated his operation. He has placed himself or his will in the hands of another. And they failed. It says in Matthew 9, 36 through 38, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now folks, is that not strange to you? Here is Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, standing there within sight of the harvest. He looks and sees that there are not enough laborers. 
that the fruit is falling to the ground, that it's rotting, that it's dying, that it's perishing, and the Lord of the harvest turns to the very few laborers who are there laboring together in that harvest, and he says to them, look, the fruit is rotting. Won't you pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers? And the Lord of the harvest is standing there over the rotting fruit. Is he handicapped? Is the Lord of the harvest prevented from sending forth laborers? Must he wait on those laborers to ask for help? Does he not see the need himself? Would the fruit truly rot and perish if the laborers do not request assistance? Isn't this strange to you? I think that many of us have seen these things in the backs of our minds. And we've created some theological barriers to praying. We've created some psychological walls which prevent us from believing God. I think we have, let me say it this way, my greatest temptation as a Christian is Calvinism. My greatest temptation in trial is Calvinism. Oh, I've studied it. I've read it. I was taught it. And I think Calvinism didn't start with Calvin, nor did I think it start with Augustine in the 5th century. I think Calvinism started with a depraved human mind. I think Calvinism is the biggest cop-out in the world. Now, I'm not here just to downgrade Calvinism, but I just want to tell you something. The hyper-Calvinistic position is the devil's position. Now, if you're a Calvinist, just hang on and just forget that and follow the rest of what I've got to say, all right? <laughs> Maybe you can fit all this in and still be a Calvinist. I doubt it. <laughs> Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into his harvest. If this fruit's ordained unto salvation, why pray for laborers? If it's God's heart to win the lost, why is he waiting for us to pray and to go? Why has God conditioned his assistance to us, his activity in our midst among the sons of men, to the prayers of men? It looks sort of like God has put these disciples in charge of the harvest. It sort of looks like he had delegated the authority of the harvest to them and then withdrawn. It looks like he'd said to them, that field is yours. You go out there and pick that field, harvest that fruit. Now, by the way, if you don't have enough resources, come let me know, and I'll hire some more laborers. If you still don't have enough, you come back and ask me, and I'll hire some more laborers. But I am delegating the authority to make this harvest and to process this fruit. I'm delegating it into your hands. I'm out of the picture, except if you need some assistance, you let me know. It looks like that's what he's saying. I don't know, years ago I watched on... Uh, Pinocchio, Disney's Pinocchio, and I read the book Pinocchio, and originally Pinocchio, before Disney messed with it, was really a Christian tale. Geppetto, the puppet maker, was a fatherless man, and he had a room full of all these puppets, but he wanted a boy. So he took an old block of wood, and he carved from it a boy. And then out of that block of wood and that carved boy attached strings to the puppet, and then he began to play with the puppet and dance with it, and he made its mouth move, and he spoke for it. 
And Geppetto and Pup, Pinocchio danced all around the puppet shop there, and, and Pinocchio, uh, Geppetto was having a good time like I used to have with my little boys. And then all of a sudden he made Pinocchio stumble and fall and get tangled in his own strings. And he stopped looking like a boy. He looked like a big pile of wooden sticks laying there all tangled up in his strings, dead and lifeless. And then Pinocchio yanked the strings back to life. Pinocchio popped back up and began to dance again, to, to Geppetto's delight. Most Christians believe that God is a puppet maker, that Christians are puppets, that God pulls the strings and bears all the responsibility. Most Christians believe that if they don't go and take the gospel, somebody else will. Most Christians believe that if they don't go and no one else goes, then those people really weren't ordained to life and it'll all work out all right in the end. That's what most Christians believe, Cal Calvinist or not. That's what most Christians believe. They won't admit that, but that's what they believe. Folks, if a house was on fire and it was burning up and you just stood there and didn't rush in to save them because you said, well, if, it, they, if it's intended for them to be saved, they'll be saved, then you don't really believe that their salvation depends on your actions. You don't really believe it's necessary that you should obey and respond. Most of the books that you read about prayer start off and usually end with a concept that prayer is going to somehow change the prayer and make him accomplish in his own life the thing that he's praying will come about. Folks, that smacks of oriental meditation. It's sort of like meditating on nothingness. If I am the answer to my prayers, folks, I can't encourage myself to pray. If my prayers are answered because I'm going to be changed, I don't have time for it, really. Unless I'm talking to a real God who's really alive, who is not responsive until I pray, and my prayers are actually going to produce a response that's going to make things change and happen and be different today than what they would have been, then I'm not going to pray until I'm convinced that I'm in a position that I am going to move God by praying and change God by praying, then I have no option to pray. And if you don't believe your prayers are changing God, then I know you don't really pray. And if your theology prevents you from believing that you can change God by praying, you're going to be a prayerless human being or your prayers will just be some formal response. Well, let me ask you, do other things in the Christian life happen automatically? Acts 26, 20. But showed first unto them of Damascus and Jerusalem throughout all the coast of Judea and, them, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Paul went out preaching that men should repent, except ye repent, Luke 13, 3. Ye shall all likewise perish. It sure looks like God has conditioned the salvation of the sinner on the sinner's repentance and faith. Now, theologies tell us that God grants repentance unto life. I know that verse is there. They tell us that faith, but not of him, but of God, that God gives the faith. Now, if, if God gives the repentance and God gives the faith, and he gives it those who have not been moved to repent yet, and those who have not chosen to believe yet, 
And if it's really the work of God foreordained from before the foundation of the world, then I'd have a hard time doing what Paul did, and that's going out there beating the bushes, preaching to a bunch of sinners that are going to beat me up for it. Folks, if I didn't believe that it was absolutely essential and necessary that I personally go there and preach to those people or that go to hell, that I needed to call them to repentance, he said in Acts 28, 23, And when they had appointed him a day, there came unto him many lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus. I could not bring myself to persuade a man where I didn't believe that persuasion was necessary. Romans ten thirteen through 17, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says, And how shall they call upon him of whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? And it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Folks, I don't care what your theology is. If you read that verse and believe anything about it, you're a hardcore Armenian at that point. You're a Methodist at that point. Because he said these people cannot be saved if they don't hear. That's the word of God. And he said they cannot hear unless somebody preaches to them. And he said that person can't preach to them Unless somebody sends them. Now that's means. We call that means. God has a means to the salvation of the sinner. And that means is placed in the hand of the preacher and the church that sends them and the message they take. And when the preacher goes, it's his job to persuade them, to call them to repentance, and to demand that they believe the gospel. And if they don't, to announce their damnation and that the damnation is on their own head for refusing to believe the gospel. Folks, you can't get anything else out of the mass of Scripture other than that. Now I'm going to take you back to the Scripture and show you the background for this situation that we've described here. This may be new to some of you. In Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him. Now, wait a minute. Who's this? Man? Yes. Man. You go back and look at the original verse there in the Old Testament. He's talking about man. Thou madest him man a little lower than the angels. Now, it speaks of Jesus being made a little lower than the angels later. But this is referring to man. Thou crownest him with glory and honor? Uh, crowned him, man, with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands, and has put all things in subjection under his feet. Man, Adam, in the garden. He goes on to say, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Now he's telling us that originally... God created man, and when he did, he crowned him with glory, and he crowned man with honor, and then he put all things in subjection. Folks, that's the moon, that's the stars, that's the sun, that's the planets, that's the universe. God placed Adam as king over the universe. 
Let me put it another way. Adam was placed as king over the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of God. I can't take time to explain the difference, but the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are in no way the same. You can tell because they're spelled differently. The kingdom of God is that unseen kingdom that's a spirit kingdom that anyone in heaven, hell, earth, or anywhere beyond, when they're rightly related to God, they're in the kingdom of God. Angel, man, otherwise. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that can be taken by force. Babylon can run the kingdom of heaven. Rome can run the kingdom of heaven. Egypt can run the kingdom of heaven. Satan can run the kingdom of heaven. Or the saints of God can take the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, Christ will take it by force and violence, having a vesture dipped in blood and a sharp two-edged sword. Don't take time to explain all that to you. But the kingdom of heaven is a physical, literal kingdom that is in the heavenly bodies, the earth being part of that heavenly bodies. Now, this kingdom of heaven was placed in the charge of Adam. He was king, and there was their domain. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them with a free will. And then God, after breathing the breath of life into Adam, stepped back and cut all of the strings off of Adam. He was, no, he was not a puppet. God cut all of the strings. Now, animals, God programmed so that their behavior is absolutely predetermined. But man's behavior is not predetermined. Pre-intended, but not predetermined. God created man with the ability to do exactly what God does, and that's exactly what he chooses to do. God does good because God chooses to do good. God is merciful, gracious, and just because he chooses to be merciful and graced and just. If God's character didn't spring from his will, then it wouldn't be character at all. He'd be a puppet himself. God is a God of holiness because he loves holiness. And when God created Adam and Eve, he stepped back and he said, now you can, in other words, there was a point of absolute freedom in which they could choose their destiny. They could choose their future. And to confirm that choice, God placed the two trees there, knowledge of good and evil and tree of life. And God did not put a fence around the tree of knowledge of good and evil, nor did he hide it in some distant corner of the garden. God placed it right in the middle of the garden where they would continually have to make a choice between obeying the word of God or following the lust inherent within their own flesh. Lust of the eyes, lust of flesh, and pride of life, part of their inherent nature, which was to desire food, to desire things pleasant, and to naturally be wise. All those things were part of their created being. They could take those natural propensities that God created within them and they could direct those propensities toward God, righteousness, and true holiness. Or could they could take them and direct them towards Lucifer, Satan, and selfishness. In other words, they stood on the threshold of choice. The character of the whole human race, the future of the whole human race, all tied up in Adam's loins, all bound in his body and his soul, hinged on the choices that they would make. And that day the human race made a choice, a choice to turn away from almighty, holy, righteous God and to turn to Lucifer and take the shortcut of knowledge of good and evil and to attempt to make a quick rise to be like the gods. And the human race fell out of favor with God and became at enmity with God and God's curse was placed upon the human race. And Satan at that point became the god of this world you say, but no, wait a minute, God is the God of this world. Absolutely not. We know that from Scripture. 
You see, God had given the world to Adam and Eve. They were crowned with glory and honor and sat over all the works of his hands. And when Adam and Eve drug this world, the soil of the garden, into disobedience, when they followed Lucifer by default, by wicked conquest, Satan became the god of this world. And you say, what right does he have? He has no right at all. But what he did have was an evil planet fallen into evil, and God will not rule over evil. God does not rule over the fallen, the corrupt, the depraved. And when the human race entered into depravity, by default, the human race became subject to darkness, to death, to damnation, to destruction, and to Satan's will. Adam capitulated. He, he, he stepped off the throne. He, yes, he was naive. Yes, he didn't understand fully what he was doing. But Adam stepped aside and said to Satan, you can take the throne. You can run this thing for me. And you know what? God honored Adam's decision. God could have stepped in and immediately smashed Adam. But God honored his will, his decision. God honors the decision of every sinner right up till the day they walk through the gates of hell. God honors the will of every Christian. God honors the actions of every church. He'll take your candlestick away, but he'll not come down and take a tornado and wipe you out, not normally. He'll not shut your mouth when you preach false doctrine. When doctrines of devils arise in the middle of the church, God stays back and lets you hear doctrines of devils. If you choose to believe doctrines of devils and bring destruction to your life and your family, God does not usually intervene. God has created this world so that man is over, in authority over it. And if man gives that authority to Satan, God honors it. Now, folks, there's no other way to explain the mass, the preponderance of Scripture, except seeing it in this light. We read in Luke chapter 11, verse 18, he says, If Satan also be divided against Satan, against himself, how shall, now this is Jesus speaking, how shall his, Satan, kingdom stand? Jesus was attacking the kingdoms of darkness on this earth in the person of individuals who are devil-possessed. And they said Satan's doing that. And Jesus refers to these individuals out of whom he cast devils and said that's Satan's kingdom. Jesus admitted that this was Satan's kingdom he was messing with. Luke 4, 5, and 6 and the devil taketh him up uh, into a high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms, kingdoms, the book, the Bible's a kingdom book, kingdoms of the world a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me. Satan said, these kingdoms of the world are delivered unto me. Now you say he was lying. I don't hardly think standing before the Son of Almighty God that Satan would try coughing a lie on him. There had to be some truth there to be any power in it whatsoever. He said, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Now Satan was, he was desperate, folks. He was fixed to make one big gamble. He'd spent a lifetime 
putting men in power. He'd spent a lifetime working in the weapons of warfare, in the deceptive synagogues of Satan, in the temples of, uh, of immorality. He had scattered his demons throughout the world to create doctrines and religions and falsehood. All of that was his. It had been delivered unto him by Adam and by subsequent generations who delivered it unto him. And he saw the Son of God standing before him and knew that that Son of God came to take the kingdoms of this world and give them back to God. And he said to him, look, I'll give them to you. You want them? I'll give every one of them to you and all the glory and all the souls. All the, I'll give it all to you if you will just fall down and worship me. You see, he used to worship the Son when he was over the throne of God. And all he wants is to be worshipped. He was willing to give it all up just for a moment of worship. Then we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds. Satan is the God of this world. Before Christ came, we're kept under principalities. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers, rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan can only rule over darkness. And when Adam plunged into darkness, he capitulated and Satan became ruler. When you walk in darkness, you are by default giving your life to Satan. When you live in sin, you are by default coming under his power. You remember what it says in Romans? As to whomsoever you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servant you are, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, you're the servant of sin. If you yield to righteousness, you're the servant of God. Now, we've established the point that God gave the human race to Adam. Adam is placed as the king over the king of heaven. Adam has free choice, and God is willing to honor Adam's choice. And the only thing God is going to use is persuasion. Remote, objective persuasion. God is not going to come down and use force. Now, he'll use force in the end to damn, but God will not use force to stop the free choice of man in his obedience to Satan. Man is in authority. Now, God would like to set up the kingdom on earth. He would like to establish the kingdom of God here in the kingdom of heaven. He would like for the kingdom of God to expand so that the kingdom of heaven can once again come under God's rule. But it takes three things to have a kingdom. It, number one, it takes a king. Well, we've got the king, but the only thing the world's got the wrong one. Number two, it takes subjects, that is people, in submission to the king and his government. Well, we've got subjects, but they're in submission to the wrong king. And the third thing it takes is some terra firma, some property, a kingdom, some land, a place where the subjects live in subjection to the king and his rule. Well, we've got the property. Only thing, it's in the wrong hands. So the kingdom is here. It's a usurped kingdom. Are you following me? Amen. Folks, this is the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the story of the Bible about a kingdom. Adam lost the kingdom. God wiped out the human race, started over, finally chose one man, Abraham. Said, walk around, whatever the sole of your foot touches, it's yours. I'm going to start the kingdom again. Here's the beachheads called Palestine. 
He gave them a piece of property. The Jews lost it to Babylon. Christ came and first of all John the Baptist comes and he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus came in the wilderness preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus preached repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he said except you be born again you'll not see the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. But he said, from the days of John the Baptist until right now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent have taken it by force. John came offering the kingdom, but the Roman powers were using violence. And they killed John, and they took the kingdom away. John was offering that should come. So the kingdom had violently been taken away. And finally, the message Jesus is preaching is one of the kingdom of God, that if you're born again and enter the kingdom of God, then there'll be subjects. They'll be subject in submission to the rightful king. And then the kingdom can come. Are you following me? So the new birth is the way we enter into the kingdom of God so that we can be rightful subjects for the kingdom of heaven. We mu- the king must reestablish relationships with this planet. You see, the king went away into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. And he placed just a few people in charge of his vineyard. And he said, I'm going to return, and here is some talents. I want you to multiply this, and when I come back, I'm coming back to receive a kingdom. Uh, Parables are absolutely full of this kind of teaching. So what God needed was one man on earth, just one man that was in the kingdom of God who would be a rightful heir to the kingdom of heaven. Are you following me? God needed one man. Tried Moses, that didn't work out. Tried, you know, Abraham. Tried the Jews. Tried different ones, didn't work out. John the Baptist is killed. There is not a man upon the face of the earth in submission to Almighty God who can be rightful heir to the original kingdom. They're all under the power of darkness. God needed a man, a sinless man, a holy man, a man walking after that king in the far country. One who could be the beachhead that would allow him an entrance, a legal right to start working in this planet. There needed to be a man who could say, come, take the throne. For that revolution to occur, there had to be somebody on the other side who could establish that authority. So God had that man. To us, a child is born, and a son is given. And what did it say, folks? The government will be upon his shoulders. Talking about government, kingdom. And of the increase of his, what is it, kingdom or government, there shall be no end. You see, Jesus came as king of the Jews. Not just a religious figure, but king of a planet, king of the Jews. And the final move Christ will make is to deliver up the kingdoms of this world that they'll become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. That's the final move he makes. Christ is a warrior destroying all enemies. The last enemy he'll destroy is that first thing that came into this planet that submitted this planet to Satan, 
those who through all their lifetime, through fear of death, were subject to the bondage of Satan, the last enemy he'll destroy is death. And when he destroys that enemy, then all the kingdoms will be bound back up. So we got a parenthesis period in here from the time that Adam, head of the human race, king of the kingdom of heaven, submitted his kingdom to Satan, and finally through conquest, through establishing a beachhead, Christ, the king of kings, once again has a right, an authority, with a host of heavenly beings behind him who are not heavenly at all but earthly, all riding on white horses, the king of kings, the son of man, comes back to that planet that he earned a right to govern, and he comes with men from that planet who were given right through Adam to rule, and he comes and takes that kingdom by force and sends his angels throughout the four parts of the earth to gather together those that are his, and he brings the nations before him and judges those nations and sets up a kingdom and rules the earth with a rod of iron. It's a kingdom book. It's about a king. Let me ask you, who is your king? Listen to this scripture. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. But under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Listen to this. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. What's he saying? That scepter was identified the king and gave him his authority, expressed his authority as he sat there on the throne. He said the scepter of Christ's kingdom is righteousness. Now I'm fixing to tell you something and then to prove it that's going to kind of blow your mind at first. Christ did not obtain the right to this earth's kingdom through his death on the cross. Christ's death on the cross was not aimed at Satan who was the heir of this kingdom. Christ's right to this kingdom came through righteousness. Now understand that man being in bondage to Satan, man could not participate in that kingdom until the cross had freed him from that penalty and gave God legal right. But Christ's authority came as a human being born on this planet from a woman who came from Adam, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is prophesied there in Genesis. Being the seed of the woman, he had the right to bruise the head of Satan because of his righteousness. Now, I see you're kind of holding that. Hang on to it. It's okay. Listen to this. Continuing in Hebrews 1, 8, 9. But under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, a scepter of righteousness, a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He's talking about Jesus as a human being. He said as a human being, because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity, God anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness above all his fellows. Folks, that can't be talking about God, Jesus Christ in heaven. That's got to be talking about Jesus, the man in the whole context there demonstrates it. In other words, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit when he went down to the waters of baptism because he was a righteous man. He was an overcoming man. He was a law-obeying man. He was a God-loving man. He was a man, a son of Adam, the son of man, who loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And therefore God anointed him above his fellows. Hebrews 2, 
But in a certain place he testified, saying, you remember me reading that, what is man? And then I came to verse 8, which says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he has put all things in subjection under his feet, he left nothing that is not put under him. Now we see not yet all things put under him, continuing in verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. You remember that's what he did to Adam. Well, here's the, here's the, here is the second man only ever, and he's crowned with glory and honor. That by the grace of God he should taste death for every man because that's the enemy and has to be destroyed. And it says, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, that's Christ, in bringing many sons into glory. Christ's goal was to take these sons who lost that crown of glory and honor. Here's the man crowned with glory and honor who's going to bring many more sons of God into that glory and honor. For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, baptized into one body. Water, a spirit baptism, not water. For which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's establishing here in the book of Hebrews Christ's human credentials to be the high priest, to be the king, to establish a better covenant on better promises with a better hope in a better city with better things and with a better blood than that which speaketh of Abel. And then we read in Hebrews 2.16, for barely he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. That's human. Hebrews 5, 7, and 9. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, not because he was God, but he had that human virtue of fear of God. Though he were a son, Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect. You say, now wait a minute, that boggles my mind. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was made perfect. Yes, he was made perfect man in his obedience, his victory over temptation from Satan, in his endurance right up to the cross. He was made perfect as the, human, as the substitute for the human race to stand before God. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. In other words, God needed a man who was victorious, who stood up where Adam failed. God needed a man who could stand and conquer above all, a man who could qualify to rule over all the kingdom of heaven and at the same time who could be seated on the right hand of God, who could become a worthy ambassador who could reach down one hand and grab a hold of earth, reach up the other hand and grab a hold of God and bring the two together. There's one mediator between God and man. What does it say? The man, the man, Christ Jesus. The emphasis is on the overcoming man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews seven sixteen said, Who is made, Jesus is made, not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. He earned that right because of his righteousness, his holiness, and his endless life. Now, you see, that put him in the position. That put Christ in the position as a man. Couldn't do it as God. Had to be a man. That put him in the position as a man to then come underneath the law and take the curse that we had acquired through our disobedience 
take the curse of the law as sin was laid upon him and all of that laid upon him as man then he could die and properly dispose of the guilt, the condemnation, the penalty, and the death that was brought upon the human race as a result of Adam's sin. Because just as Adam brought the race into sin, it was Adam, the last Adam, just as man brought the human race into sin, it was man, the second one. Just the second one. Until Adam, there was no other. Here was the Son of God, the second man. It was man, it was Adam then, that brought the human race to the altar of sacrifice and executed the sinners, buried them in his own body, in his own tomb, raised them from the dead, and is able to seat them on the right hand of God and call them sons of God, not being ashamed that they're his brethren, bringing many sons into glory. So in terms of authority, this is, this, uh, this is after Jesus' temptation. John 14, verse 30. This is before the cross. He says, Hereafter I will, talk, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. You see, he was already victorious over the devil. Now, there'd have to be a spot of darkness for the devil to get anything in you. He's got nothing in you unless you've got a spot of darkness, and he hides in that darkness. Then in Matthew 28, this is going to open up a door for you here. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Folks, he hadn't died yet. He had not died yet. You say, well, he's speaking future. Why make it difficult? How was all power given to him in heaven and earth, and he hadn't died yet? Now, folks, that death was not aimed at God's right to rule the earth or the right of the Son of Man to rule the earth who was righteous because God instilled that right into man when he created Adam. Christ simply qualified, was the only second man to ever qualify, and through his righteousness and his holiness and his endless life, he had the right to receive all power in heaven and in earth. Now, he couldn't impart that power fully, completely, and permanently to a mortal man until that man was in the kingdom of God with his sins removed and the penalty gone and the power of Satan destroyed in that man's life, the strong man bound in that man's life. God didn't have the power or the right because he'd been unjust. God was living with a sentence of injustice hanging over him in his very forgiveness of all the Old Testament saints. God had an indictment hanging over him of being totally unjust. He damned instantly millions of angels that sinned, and yet through his long suffering, he had forbear, forborne the sins of mankind for 4,000 years. God appeared as unjust. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know where I'm coming from. Now Luke 10, 17. So Jesus said, All power is given unto me. And Luke 10, 17 through 20 says, and the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. Us. Now, wait a minute. 
Had the devils ever been subject to man? That hadn't been the way it had been for the last 4,000 years. Man had been subject to the devils. And here the disciples are saying, Lord, the devils are subject to us. Let's add that on now. Let's get that through thy name. In other words, that subjection had nothing to do with them. It had to do with that name they were speaking. They were simply ambassadors, representatives of the man who had the power over the devils. The man who had a right to this planet. So as right to this planet, the, the disciples could walk up and say to another mortal man who'd been possessed of devils all their life, they could say, in the name of that overcoming man, Jesus. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You remember how the disciples said that? Jesus of Galilee, the man. Emphasizing the humanity. In his name, I command you to come out. And folks, they had to come out even before the cross. Even before the cross. Why? Because the power was in the man. Jesus. And look how Jesus responds. And he said unto them, now this is in response to the devils are subject. He looks up, he says, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. You know, theologians have taken that verse and tried to get it over there in Revelation 12. Tried to get it over there in the second coming somewhere. Folks, Jesus was sitting out underneath a fig tree, meditating and praying, talking to the Father, and he'd sent the disciples out by two, and one of them was out there standing over a little old girl possessed of a devil, and the disciples said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I command you to come out of her. And meanwhile, another pair somewhere else, another pair somewhere else, devils are coming out right and left. Jesus meditating. He sees heaven open like John saw it open. And he sees the devil going right over the tops of the embattlement and come flying out of heaven. What happened? Men were exercising the authority of God, the power of God down on earth, and heaven got kicked, Satan got kicked out of heaven that day. I don't believe it was permanent kicking out. I don't believe it was the battle where Michael the archangel threw him out, but I believe Jesus that very day. Because, now remember, folks, it'd be totally out of context and out of place for him to say that at that point. He is responding to their statement, the devils are subject to us. He says, yes, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning while you guys are out there preaching the gospel and commanding. Then in Matthew 16, 18 and 19, he says, I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He did not say the gates in hell. He said the gates of hell. The Bible talks about Satan's kingdom, Satan's stronghold, Satan's towers, and so forth. Satan's principalities, his powers, his ruling. Folks, the church is not interested in going to hell and open the gates. It'd be futile. We have no interest in going to hell and open the gates. I don't want to go there. I don't want to see what's there. I don't want to hear the cries of the damned. There's, I have no reason to go to hell. But I want to tell you something. There are gates of hell established around cities, around towns, around some churches, and around some congregations when you're preaching to them. Satan builds up his walls and his defenses, and he shackles people, and Jesus comes to set 
the captives free. He comes to loose those who are in bonds. Jesus didn't come to turn out the, the people out of the prison houses. He's talking about those prison houses, those gates of hell that have been set up. Here is the man, the only man who's ever qualified to say, Satan, you have no right over this planet. You have no right over this human flesh. You're usurper. I command you to depart. We're taking back the kingdom. Only Jesus earned that right. And now he's delegated that authority to do that to the disciples even before the cross. Now they lacked the proper tools to be thorough and complete and to continue in that because they didn't have a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and their sins hadn't been dealt with by the blood of Jesus and God himself had not been vindicated through the shedding of his blood and its application to his very throne which gave him legal right to eternally and forever pardon those members of his kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We just heard that verse of Scripture, For whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do it. You see, Jesus left this planet. And he said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. He said, Now you, he said, On this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against now you go forth into all the world. Now you preach the gospel to every creature. Now you teach them, you baptize them in my name. You teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of it. In other words, Jesus turned around and delegated to the church, his church, the church of Jesus Christ. He delegated that authority he'd won through his sinless life. And the victory he'd won over Satan through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, he delegated that authority back to the church. And he said, now it's your job, it's your vineyard, I gave it to you to start with, you lost it, I've reclaimed it, I've put it back in your hands, now you go forth and you conquer. And you build a kingdom, I'll come back, and when I do, I'm coming back to receive it. So why does he say... Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Because, folks, God will never send a single laborer anywhere on the face of the earth unless a human being, a human being who has the rights, the keys to the kingdom, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. God does not loose. God does not bind until we have first bound and first loosed. Folks, we don't loose in response to God. God looses in response to us. We don't bind in response to God. God binds in response to us. Kind of quiet in here. Kind of strange, isn't it, to your ears? There is not going to be a soul get saved... There's not going to be a gate opened. There's not going to be a tower torn down. There's not going to be a spot of ground claimed. There's not going to be a soul saved or sanctified unless you decide to do it. Now those forces of darkness are still here because there's still people here full of darkness that give them access to their souls. And God is still free. And man is still free. The world is still free. 
And you and I are men of light walking among a greater number of men of darkness. We have ministering spirits sent forth to minister. We have the comforter placed inside. We have the commission. We have the power of God. We have the authority. And we're outnumbered. We're sent forth as sheep among wolves. But folks, he didn't send us defenseless. He gave us the shield of faith. He gave us the sword of the Spirit. He gave us the helmet of salvation. He gave us the breastplate of righteousness. And he said, you want to have on shoes. Don't go barefooted. Don't lay down on the couch. You put on shoes and they're shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then he said, above all, above all of that, pray, pray, pray. Talk to the Father. Keep your lines of communication open. Let all things be made known through prayer and supplication. Pray. Pray for one another. Pray for the world. And especially, he said, if you're not getting the job done, you talk to me, you tell me, and I'll send out some more laborers. If you don't talk to me, I won't do it because you're an authority. If you bind, I'll bind. If you lose, I'll lose. If you don't move, there'll be no movement. Folks, God's not a Calvinist. Now, I want to conclude with these thoughts. People have asked me, said, how could you, isn't it horrible? Isn't it torturous? How could you allow your daughter to go to the mountains of Papua New Guinea among a tribe of people, you know, like you heard her describe? She didn't tell you some of the stuff that's bad up there. She made it sound pretty nice. She didn't tell you about the guy that came in the village while she was there and said he was going to come back and eat one of the children. You know, an American kind of laughed at that, but the other people didn't laugh because he'd already been there and eaten one of the kids. Now, they say, how, how could you send your daughter to a place like that? I didn't send her alone. But wasn't she there by herself? No. She had all kinds of angels around her. We were praying at home. We were praying in the middle of the night. We are praying when we're eating. We are praying when we're sleeping. We are praying when we're walking. We are praying when we're swimming. We are praying. And you know what we did? The church at Cane Creek established a beachhead in Papua New Guinea. When we put her on that mountain, she seemed so insignificant. Can't preach the gospel, you know, the woman. And a, and, and a group of people, by the way, that believed that women weren't worth any more than a pig or a dog. People that just treat women with total disdain, beat on their wives, just wouldn't respect, didn't think a woman ought to learn to read or anything. You know, I mean, just totally a culture different from ours, where a woman had less authority than anything. How could we send her there? Because in her presence, in her presence, we were taking that piece of ground for the kingdom of God. Through her standing there on that ground, through her standing there praying, the forces of darkness are pushed off of that mountain. They're pushed back down into the swamps and the valleys. And that mountain becomes Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord. Becomes a holy and a sacred place. And I knew right there at home I was doing just as well as I could do on that mountain. I knew that I was doing all that I could do if I was sitting there in a the hut with her. 
Folks, a few thousand miles and a 48-hour plane flight is nothing to God. You know, I, she had, eventually she got a little radio up there, and, uh, and she could call out on the solar power she had to a, a base camp, and they could dial my number on the telephone and hook that thing up, and I could talk to her sitting right there in her little hut. And the first time I did it was absolutely just, just shocking. It was just astounding. It was like getting into heaven or something. You know what I mean? Here's my daughter. We hadn't talked to her in months. And, and she, she writes, says we're hooked up, you know, and pick up the telephone. And, yeah. Hello? Daddy? Yeah? Rebecca? Yeah? <laughs> Man, that was fun. Now, you know, if man can make a telephone and go over there on top of that mountain... Don't, and, and you know how long it takes? It, it takes, it, it, sometimes it's just a fraction of a second delay. You can hear in the talk. Folks' prayers get there a lot quicker than that. Get there a lot quicker than that. There's times my wife, my wife has a gift in prayer that God speaks to her like he doesn't speak to me and reveals things. She knows things that are happening just like she'd gotten a letter. Now, I don't do that. Now, a couple times, a few times. There was a while, rare, but it's strange, you know. But my wife will wake up and tell me about the future or about something going on on the other side of the world, and we pray. It's just for prayer, folks. It's not for entertainment. She says, we need to pray. This is happening. And, folks, we pray, and we find out we're praying at the right minute. That we were bringing deliverance by our prayers. Now, when he said... It's not the will of the Father that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When he said in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any that is his father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? You know, most Christians believe that's the way God works. They believe God's going to give them scorpions and stones and snakes. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? You know, Christians take for granted that they've got the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have, you're none of his. I know that, Romans 8. But I know something else. The disciples who, in the early church that received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that same crew got together about five chapters later and said, Grant us the power to preach this word. And the Holy Ghost fell on them again. The place was shaken. The power of God came, and they preached, and things happened. And folks, all that God's got Everything that God is, His entire kingdom, heaven, is at our disposal when we're doing His will, His work, His way, in His time, for His glory. All we have to do is ask, but asking is absolutely essential. It's the means, if you leave it out, you'll not receive, you've got to ask. You receive not because you ask not. Are we going to believe this? Are we going to believe this message? Or are we going to go back and recline on our Calvinist couch and wait on God to do something that only we can do? It's fun to pray when you know it's working. It's no fun to pray, folks, when, you, when you're talking, your prayer's hitting the ceiling, falling back on top of your head, and, 
and, and you wonder what you're going to have to do to make this thing work. But when you know you're going straight to the throne room of God and you can see God doing this, man, angels running this way and that, one of them drawing his sword, whoa, like a streak of lightning, one going down, and Satan get kicked right out of heaven when you pray. God said, God said, I'm tired of listening to your threats and your accusations. Remember, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's got to be in heaven to do that. Accuse them before God day and night. And here's Satan accusing the brethren, and you pray, and out he goes into his accusations for a while. And Satan departed from him for a little season. You can cause Satan to depart from your missionaries. You can cause him to depart from your family. You can cause him to depart from your church. You can cause him to depart from the village you're trying to reach with the gospel and see hearts open and souls saved for no other reason than that you prayed. I rest my case. 